Our first reading is from the second chapter of Genesis, reading verse 7 and then from verse 15 to the end of the chapter. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living thing. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may eat freely out of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone, I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Our second reading is from 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, reading from verse 3. I have to say that I found this quite difficult to understand, and I'd be interested to see what Luke has got to say to us about it. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the husband is the head of every wife. And God is the head of Christ. Any man who prays or prophesies with something on his head disgraces his head. But any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. It is one and the same thing as having a head shaved. For if a woman will not veil herself, then she should cut off her hair. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or be shaved, she should wear a veil. For a man ought not to have his head veiled, since he is in, made in the image and reflection of God. But woman is the reflection of man. Indeed, man was not made for woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. For this reason, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, or man independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman. But all things come from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head unveiled? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is degrading to him. But if a woman has long hair, is it her glory? For her, her hair is given to her for a covering, 
But if anyone is disposed to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Thank you, John. I was trying not to look round at everyone because uh, there was a few smirks, a few giggles. Um, the Bible's fun, right? <laughs> uh, I missed last week's sermon. I was uh, running the Amsterdam Marathon for my sins, um, so I didn't hear, and I've yet to listen back on the uh, podcast, um, but I understand that it was a particularly tricky sermon, and uh, this entire series has been a plethora of tricky sermons. Um, some have been really hard to listen to, and I can't help but still smile even though I'm talking about hard things right now because I'm still thinking about that ridiculous passage. Um, but it, it, we, we have had some really difficult passages in which even those who have been sharing the readings have found it hard to speak out loud the words that the passages of Scripture are saying to us. That's hard, and grappling with this is really difficult. What I would like for you to get out of today is to go away feeling somewhat affirmed, to go away feeling perhaps a little happier and perhaps a little bit more content that the Bible has something positive for us. Does God care about hairstyles? No. <laughs> so you can all go home. According to that clock, it's 12.20, so we're well overdue um, and it's time to go home. Class dismissed. I mean, it could be that simple. Uh, and I thought that it might be when I opted to preach on this topic when Dawn, Simon, and I were going through the list of our anti-lectionary. I thought compared to Sodom and Gomorrah, which is what I preached on a few weeks ago, this would be a piece of cake. But then I began to get a little fixated on the first part of the question. And if you've ever been in a conversation with me that's remotely theologically inclined, when I get fixated on something, you end up going down a bit of a rabbit hole um, and you begin to think, oh gosh, where is this ever going to end up and am I ever going to get out of it? And the question that I got stuck on was, does God care? I mean, never mind about hairstyles, does God care at all? Now that's a little dicier and a question that has the potential to be fairly destructive. Perhaps it's a question you've already asked yourself or of others before. And if so, how did those conversations or thoughts make you feel? If this is the first time that you've ever been asked that question, maybe think now how it makes you feel. Does God care? Bear with me. Turn to the person next to you. You're going to recoil in shock and horror, either in the, in the pew next to you or turn around to talk to someone and share the first few thoughts that come to your mind when asked, does God care? And then maybe think about why do you give the answer that you do? Now, it's okay if you're not comfortable sharing in this way, then don't. Uh, we're all different and we all process very differently. I'm a verbal processor. I like to talk. Many of us in this space don't. So if you don't want to engage in this way, that's absolutely fine. But if you do, turn to the person next to you or to someone near you and ask each other, how do you feel when someone asks you, 
does God care? And if someone then turns to you and says, I'd rather not talk to you, don't be offended. Don't think they're odd. Just move on to talk to someone else. So a couple of minutes, that's all, just to start pondering on that, what do you feel, what do you think when asked, does God care? Discuss. Okay, begin to draw your musings to a close. It could be a particularly uh, volatile discussion that could go on for quite a while, so I figured let's just keep it short and, you know, ask the impossible, ask you to answer a question like that in two minutes. Um, I'm not going to ask you to feedback. It's, it, you might have been discussing something personal or and often sharing in big spaces is uncomfortable for people, but just note what you came away with. Did the question challenge you? Did it unnerve you? Or did you find it simple to answer with resounding clarity? Perhaps, and this is probably where I fall as well, it's a little bit of both. I tend to start thinking about this as, well, of course God cares. And then less confidently trying to think of anything other than a handful of Bible passages that speak to this initial confidence. The trouble with coming to or belonging to a community like Bloomsbury or somewhere similar, or even visiting us sometimes, is that we ask these big questions and we talk about hard things. And this can sometimes fit in us leaving a little deflated, a little broken, like perhaps we're salmon swimming upstream and that sometimes we're really not sure if we're going to make it. Seemingly insurmountable challenges are placed in front of us and our faith in a God who cares, and we can often feel too small to challenge them. And passages such as our reading from Corinthians today often can add to this sense of being overwhelmed, tired, drained, experiencing a kind of fatigue that only comes from negativity. Is the modern-day church built on patriarchy, exclusion, and injustice? And I mean, the answer is yes. Um, but that's not where the scripture that we read to, had read to us today should lead us. Now, in fact, we can fairly easily dismiss the problematic sense of patriarchy and misogyny in this passage if we examine the Greek a little further and understand that this is not about who is in charge of who, but rather who is the source of all things. So indulge me a little as I embark upon a brief foray into my love-hate relationship with New Testament Greek. The use of the word head in verse three of that Corinthians passage has led many uh, theologians and Bible commentators to assume that this is referring to some sort of leader or person in charge. You know, when you've got head of HR or something, they're, they're the boss, they're the person that's doing the role, they're doing the important role. But in fact, kephale, which is the Greek word used for head, was rarely used with these meanings in either classical or koine, which is the Greek that was used in the New Testament. One of the most definitive lexicons, so the big book of Greek words, basically, on ancient Greek, including this Greek that we use or have used in our Bibles, 
does not include any definition of that word kafale that could be understood as being linked to leader, ruler, or person in authority. It is perhaps more reasonable to suggest that kafale means source or origin, particularly in the context of this passage that we were reading. There are several early church theologians and writers, some of which have really easy names like Cyril of, Alexa Cyril of Alexandria um, and Saint Basil, which is a cracking name. Um, others less so, something that looks like chrysanthemum, but I'm not going to attempt to pronounce. Uh, Anastasius, Eusebius, Ambrosistia, get all the S's out in that one. Many of these classical writers actually completely don't even address that this could be talking about someone in authority. The word that they use, the meaning that they attribute, is to do with source, origin. Wayne Grudem is a uh, relati relatively well-known American evangelical who is known for his complementarian theology, which is men and women are made distinct, different, they all have roles, and we should all stick to the roles that we've been given. He set up uh, as one of the co-founders of the Council of Biblical Manhood and Biblical Womanhood. But even he concedes that although he believes kafale to mean authority, so he takes the opposite angle, he believes that it means authority, he says, there are some texts which indicate that the physical head was thought of as the source of energy and life for the body. And therefore, the possibility exists that the word kafale might have come to be used as a metaphor for source or source of life. So even a, someone so profoundly convinced of the distinction of men and women and their roles and, and God created that difference concedes that there is room to believe that this word actually means origin, means source. So then if we accept that this is what kafale means, we might then reword that passage in Corinthians, Corinthians ever so slightly. It might read something like, but I want you to realize that the source or origin of every man is Christ. And the source or origin of the first woman is the first man. And the source or origin of Christ is God. Or perhaps we might say the triune Godhead. We might decide to expand slightly on who God is in this context. Therefore, it seems entirely plausible that this narrative has absolutely nothing to do with hierarchical structure, but instead chronology, as witnessed in our reading from the second chapter of Genesis. The divine was the source of all life and first created Adam before, in turn, created Eve. This metaphorical language of coming from and through the divine speaks to a commonality in creation and a mutuality in the traditional understanding of the binary nature of gender. The circle is completed in that man cannot be born without woman, and woman would not have been created if it were not for man who in turn was created from the divine. Paul wasn't writing about the authority of anyone in this passage other than that of Christ. 
Instead, his focus was on the mutual interdependence of all people. Of course, if we take this as a metaphor and not a literal account of creation, we appreciate the beauty of the language that Paul is using here. And it does not conflict at all with the witness of equality elsewhere in scripture. In fact, it allows us to move one step further, move progressively on from the binary understanding of male and female. If we allow ourselves to accept the metaphor, to witness the involvement of Christ in and through all of creation in the very fabric of it all, we are no longer restrained, but released to explore genders beyond the binary. For we all have our source in Christ, whom there is neither male nor female. It's interesting, and, and John came up to me before the start of the service to say, I might tell everyone that this passage makes no sense to me, and I, I don't know where to go with it. Um, and if we take this passage out of context, it, it is weird, it is strange, it doesn't make any sense. It's like, why is Paul suddenly so obsessed with hairstyles? It's interesting because Paul's actually talking to the church in Corinth. He's addressing a particular issue. And we're doing that trick that we all like to do as Christians in the 21st century, and we've been doing since scripture was ordered in the canon, of taking bits out and going, well, what does that mean? But there is, in fact, recorded evidence that many of the Christians in Corinth were already beginning to shirk off traditional gender roles. So they were beginning to dress differently. And you guessed it, they were beginning to wear their hair differently. Many in Corinth, in the first century, believed that they were actually the first generation in the fully birthed kingdom of God. And therefore, previous distinctions to do with sex and procreation and gender roles and who's in charge of who were actually no longer relevant to them. Now, it seems that Paul was slightly less enamored with this directional change, and he was challenging the church in Corinth to respect traditional representations of gender distinction. For what theological reason did Paul have for this? It would be fair to say that I'm not entirely sure. But much of Paul's theology on gender identity sits in stark contrast and difference with the majority of contemporary Western practice. And let's not even start on his less than helpful narratives on sexual desire and intimacy. The problem with this passage, as I've already alluded to, and it's often the case, is that when we take it out of the context of the entire narrative of scripture, we lose the plot a little. It's like when you open a new book halfway through, do you ever do that when you're skimming through, and I do it often because I like the smell of the pages, but you start flicking through and then something catches your eye on that page and you have no idea what it's talking about because you haven't read any of the book up until that point. It's completely unfamiliar to you and it makes no sense. And then, as if it all had happened before, was just a dream, she plunged into the icy depths beneath her. Who plunged into the icy depths of what? Where are these icy depths? What was so real and yet so dreamlike? Why did it lead her to plunge anywhere, let alone icy depths? 
whatever they are and wherever they are. Anything taken out of context makes almost no sense, and I actually just made that up. Read in relation to not only the creation narrative in Genesis 2, but Christ's teachings and actions as recorded in the Gospels and the words of Paul in his other letters, it is completely incongruent for this passage to be used to, to enforce gender binaries and the subjugation of women under the control of men. It seems to me that God may not have had an issue with how people wore their hair, but instead that this was an entirely Pauline problem, in the same way that societal norms and dress today have been adopted and embraced as traditional or canonical. Someone who presents as male will still receive scorn for wearing clothing that has been traditionally received for women. And if a woman cuts her hair short, she perhaps will be largely considered to be masculine or aggressive or harsh. It is not just Paul who has had issues with appearance. We carry them with us today too. And so the question remains, does God care? And I suppose that rather depends on the sort of God that you believe in. In my opinion, God can't not care. I'll say that again. God can't not care. For God is not removed from us, but within us, around us, through us, and with us. It can often feel like God doesn't care because of the way in which we have set up the structures that we operate in. We expect God to sit in a neat box and play by the rules that we have created in a game of our own making. Millions of children dying below the poverty line in the UK, God doesn't care. The steady increase of HIV infections despite advancements in prevention and treatment, God doesn't care. The contemporary refugee crisis with millions displaced from their homes never to return, God doesn't care. Racial inequality on a level that consistently sees people of color paid less, imprisoned with greater frequency and with harsher sentences and more likely to be threatened or attacked, God does not care. The steady increase in the wealth and privilege of a select few that hold the power at the cost of the remaining 99%. God doesn't care. However, what happens when we flip that on its head? When we acknowledge and accept that there are systems and powers beyond our control that God did not create and refuses to operate in? It's not that God doesn't care it's that God won't play by the rules that we've all been forced to comply to. I believe in a God who can no more be separated from which they created than I can be from my personality. My physical body is not all that I am, but there is something more, a soul that lives, breathes, and exists with the physical. And so too, God lives in and through creation as the living, breathing soul, just as we witness in the account of the creation of humanity when God breathed life into what had been created. 
It's our rules, our structures, our paradigms of control that restrict, disempower, and inhibit us. And the church is especially good at this. In churches and Christian communities, we are taught of the unconditional love of God, but that you soon learn actually comes with, attached with a whole load of conditions. Although this is not expressed as such, the coded language used is pervasive, and the shaming of the inferiority of our desires and the physical body is rife, with what is, is rife within what is understood as purity culture. And it is texts like our reading from 1 Corinthians that are misused, misused to perpetuate this shaming as a means of control. As followers of Christ, we are taught to believe that our bodies are temples for the Holy Spirit, to be kept pure and righteous so that God doesn't have to suffer the indignity of humanity, which is, of course, completely contradictory to the incarnation in which God deliberately suffered this alleged indignity of humanity. However, the teachings of an arguably very confused apostle, Paul, that were then compounded by centuries of church doctrine around what is clean, what isn't, when things can be done and when they can't, who is in charge and who isn't, all for the purposes of control, seems to have successfully undone perhaps what is perhaps the most underrated miracle of the incarnation. Not that we are saved from the fiery damnation of hell, but that we are saved from the fiery damnation of our hatred of our own selves and of the other. That we are taught to embrace that we are not in our humanness intrinsically shameful but instead beautiful beings in our own right. That God who holds the very fabric of creation together in and through the Godhead chose to live as a human, not in shame, but in fullness and offers that to us too. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. How then can God not care? How then can God choose to prioritize one over the other based on their genitals alone? How then can God not live, breathe, dance, caress, inspire, move in and amongst all of God's creation, including each and every one of us? God does care. God does care. God does care. Let's come before the Lord in prayer this morning. God of all wholeness and peace, our world yearns for your presence. We call out to you day after day, wondering why we do not see you why we feel so abandoned. And yet, time and time again, you remind us that we only need to look around us to find you. Help us see with clarity and compassion the faces of your children, no matter how unimportant they may seem, so that we might find you there. Help us to see you in the faces of those who mourn, 
news breaks of children dying and suffering from a virus in the US, of the attack at the synagogue, the deep pain of those around the world who have experienced loss. Open our ears to hear them and our arms to comfort. Help us to see you in the faces of those who suffer, those who are in inhumane conditions in this country and abroad, for the forced re-education of Muslims in China. Fill us with a thirst for justice for all people who are abused because of poverty, gender identity, and any other vulnerability. Open our arms to them too. Help us to see you in the faces of those that are being affected by disasters, affected by hurricanes, affected by man-made disasters, affected by the changing climate of our planet. Help us to keep them in our hearts and to challenge our lives. Help us to see you in the faces of those that we consider our enemies, be they our leaders, be they even in our own homes. We pray for those that hold power, those that wield power over those that don't. We pray for the refugees and asylum seekers as they travel across their borders in the United States. We pray for all humanity, regardless of skin color, language, or country of origin. We pray for those that we know that have been affected by unfair systems. Remind us that everyone, from the most powerful leader of a nation to the most vulnerable, impoverished, or refugee, is a beloved child of God. Help us to see you in the faces of all people, for we are all made in your image. Whatever our identity, whatever our gender, our skin color, whatever our hairstyle, we are all made in your image. And we are members of this universal family. So fill us with your love, compassion, so that we might be your hands and feet and voices. Make your presence known and felt in all places so that your kingdom might grow to the ends of the earth. Amen.